All right. Good morning and uh, Merry Christmas officially as we have entered in uh, the Advent season. And so uh, the readings that we are doing uh, here with the lighting of the Advent candle, that comes from our Advent book, which uh, if you need a copy, we have them available out in the lobby. But I was also told that you can sign up for these uh, through desiringgod.org. And so this will be emailed to you uh, each and every day. So that's another option that you have in order to follow along with us as we make our way through uh, this Christmas season. <clears throat> so uh, if you've been with us for the last couple months, obviously we are in John. And so we spent a couple weeks looking through John chapter 9 looking at the man who was born blind in Jesus, how Jesus healed him. And so we saw that that was a messianic miracle that pointed to Jesus' identity as the divine son of man. And we saw how Jesus is our only hope for our spiritual blindness. And then last week, we started in John 10. And Caleb walked us through the, the first part of this, this discourse on the parable of the good shepherd. And we saw that Jesus is the door, and by the door, that means that he is God, and he is also our access to God, that he is the way of salvation, and that an abundant life is only found in him. And one of the things that I loved how Caleb brought this out is he, he told us that, that we are sheep, that, that as the good shepherd, we are the sheep, but God doesn't intend for that to be a degrading term towards us, but that tells us more about who Jesus is in, in our relationship to him. It tells more about who he is as the good shepherd than it does about us as the sheep. But we see that God is using these familiar concepts to his Jewish audience. He's using these concepts to teach them about who he is and how he loves us. And so today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the good shepherd. And so I want you to know from the start uh, I am learning just as much as you guys uh, about sheep. So I'm not an expert on sheep. I've only had one incident uh, being around sheep, and it was particularly traumatic. Um, so I was in third or fourth grade, and we took a field trip to um, a farm and livestock show at the Kentucky uh, State Fairgrounds. And so it was indoors, and so you walk into this huge exhibit hall, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheep just everywhere. They're in all these pens. And when I tell you that the smell was overwhelming, that is the, the biggest understatement in the entire world. And so the entire time, I am just fighting my gag reflex and just trying not to lose my lunch all over the exhibit hall. And I'm sitting there begging our chaperone, like, please, can we go see the tractors? Like, <laughs> please. Let me go see the tractors. Not that I was interested in tractors, but I just could not take the sheep. So uh, by God's grace today, I hope that our experience with uh, sheep and shepherds isn't as traumatic. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 10. We'll read verses 11 through 21. So this is what God's word says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. A division occurred among a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So let's pray. Lord God, <clears throat> we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for what you revealed to us. We thank you that, that you as the word became flesh in order to shepherd us as your sheep. We are grateful that you call us by name and that you know us. So we ask that you help us to hear your voice and to follow you. And we know that abundant life is only found in you. So God, we give you the glory today. We thank you and we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. So, uh, usually as we preach, I like to, to walk verse by verse, but if you notice, there's a lot of rep repetition in these verses, and so when we come across repetition in Scripture, or in any case in life, we want to ask, why is there so much repetition, and why is that the case? It's because it's important, right? There's, there's something that, that whoever is speaking to you wants you to get. He wants you to understand what is being communicated. So today we're going to look at, at the major points in this passage rather than going uh, by verse by verse. And so the first point today that we want to see that is repeated a couple times is that Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And so this is a short statement, only five words. But this is one of the seven I am statements that we see in the book of John. And so we've seen him say that I am the door, I am the light. We've seen him call himself, I am the bread of life. And so these I, I am statements, Jesus is identifying as God. He's making a divinity claim. And so when he says that I am, he's saying that I am to be, that I am self-existent, that I am not dependent upon anything else in order to exist. And so that I am, that's translated, that's where we get the word Yahweh. And so that word there, Yahweh, the name of God, that's a reminder for God's people. That's a reminder of his promises to us, that he is our creator, that he is the sustainer, that he is unchanging, he is eternal, that he is an ever-present help for believers. And so all of these I am statements, as we see them, especially in the, the Gospel of John, they reveal the personal attributes of God. And so we want to focus in on that personal aspect, that God, that Jesus is not saying that I'm some cosmically impersonal God, but that all these promises that I'm revealing and telling you who I am, that these are meant for you personally. And so as Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, that's bringing to mind to his audience a lot of biblical imagery about shepherds, about sheep. And so some of these we're familiar with, Psalm 23, which we read at the very beginning, which Caleb talked about last week. Another, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 11. But one that, that would resonate particularly with the Jewish people that are listening to Jesus is Ezekiel 34. And so in Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6, God is calling out bad shepherds. 
He's calling them out. And so Jesus is going to contrast himself with these shepherds. And so look at what uh, God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, my sheep are scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. And so these bad shepherds, these are the kings, these are the rulers, these are the religious leaders who have abandoned their duty for the sheep, for the flock, for the nation. And so we see that those bad shepherds, they're motivated by selfishness. They only care for themselves. They only worry about feeding themselves. They take advantage of the people. They clothe themselves with the wool. They slaughter the fat ones. And they do not take care of the flock. They haven't taken care of the weak. They haven't bound up the, the injured. They haven't sought out the lost. And so in John 10, which we just read, Jesus also compares them to the hired hands. They don't really care for the sheep because they have no ownership over them. They're only, they're only there working out of an oblig obligation of convenience that as long as it's good for them, they'll take care of them. But at the first sign of trouble, they're gone. They're taken off. And so they're unwilling to do the hard work of actually shepherding the people. And so Jesus also links this to the thieves and robbers, which we saw last week, who steal and kill and destroy. And so the Pharisees, these religious leaders who have their authority over the people, they're not willing to give up their lives for the sheep. In fact, it's just the opposite. So whether we're talking about thieves, whether we're talking about bad shepherds or hired hands, what's the result? Ultimately, the, the, the sheep are destroyed, that the wolf comes, it snatches, it scatters, and kills them. But Jesus is setting himself apart from those bad shepherds. He's setting them apart from the religious leaders. And so look again in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. So Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. So this is what Ezekiel says. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Jesus 
as he claims that he is a good shepherd, as he is identifying as God, he is saying, I am the ultimate shepherd, that I don't come to steal and kill and destroy, and I'm not using the sheep for my own ends, that I care more for the sheep than I do even for my own life, that I'm going to seek them out, that I'm going to rescue them, that I'm going to strengthen the weak, that I'm going to bind up the injured. And so what makes Jesus the ultimate shepherd? What makes him our shepherd? And so we, that leads us to point number two, that Jesus knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And so we want to remember that we are the sheep. That's a reminder from last week. And again, like we already mentioned, that as sheep, that has a negative connotation in our, our current culture. We don't want to be viewed as sheep. But God doesn't intend for this to be degrading towards us. And again, the, the point of us being sheep is to point to the reality of Jesus as our shepherd. That us being sheep says more about him than it does for us. Because it describes how he is going to relate to us. And so as sheep, Jesus knows our need. He knows that we are helpless, that we are completely and utterly helpless. And so one pastor said that sheep, if you think about them, that is the ultimate evidence against evolution, okay? Because if you think of evolution, one of the core components is that only the strong will survive, right? It's the survival of the fittest, right? And so only the strong survive, and the strongest they evolve in order to survive. But sheep literally cannot survive on their own, can they? They can't find their own food or own water. They'll bypass it to follow some path that they think they've already been on. They can't defend themselves from predators. They have no natural defense mechanism. And from what I've, I've read, sheep will actually walk off a cliff by themselves. They'll see the end of the cliff. They'll just go right down off the cliff. So even good things that sheep do will actually lead to their own harm. And so have you ever heard of sheep, sheep being cast? And so think of a sheep that is full of wool, right? It's heavy. It gets tired of walking and carrying all that wool. And so the sheep will lay down. And so it will then roll over on its side to stretch out its legs, to give its legs a rest from carrying all that extra weight. But what happens is a sheep, as it lays down on its side, its center of gravity shifts. So then it then rolls over completely on its side and almost on its back. And because the center of gravity completely shifted, the sheep can't get up anymore. It's like a turtle turned upside down on its shell. And so the only thing that can save a sheep at that point is a shepherd. The shepherd has to come, pick up the sheep, set it upright, or else the sheep will just sit there and paw at the air and never be able to save itself. And so we are in the exact same boat as these sheep, that we cannot survive on our own. That we know spiritually that we are doomed because of our sin. That we cannot find our own spiritual food, our own spiritual drink, in order to satisfy our deepest spiritual desires. We will wander off any spiritual cliff that we come across. And we have no defense against sin. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we try to do better, to be better, to be the best that we can be, we still can't. We can't fight against sin. Sin eventually is going to overcome us. 
And we can't pick ourselves up when we fall down. And so we want to know, we want to see that we are in real danger if we're left to our own devices, that we need a shepherd, that we are hopeless without a shepherd. And so Jesus knows our need. He knows our biggest need, but he also knows us. And this is more than just in a general sense of, yes, I know him. But he knows us personally because there's a bond between a shepherd and the sheep. He knows them personally. And this is more than knowing just the flock in general. And like Caleb explained last week, that that it wasn't uncommon for shepherds to name each and every individual sheep. And so think of how difficult that must be to, to know each and every single sheep. So as a kid, we had a a big fish tank in our house, and we would have anywhere from 20 to 30 fish at any given time. And so me and my brother tried to name all of these fish. And so some of them looked alike, and and you couldn't tell some of these apart. So we think, like, that one we've named Neon, and that one we've named Shadow, whatever. And we couldn't tell them apart. But even after these fish die really easily and you replace them with other fish— You're having to come up with different names, and eventually we just gave up. We're just like, these are our fish, right? But I can't even remember 30 names of fish, but God is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd, knows us, knows our name, because a shepherd knows the history of the sheep. He knows their hurts. He knows their weaknesses. He knows what makes them tick, and Jesus knows us in the same way, that we are not unknown to him. That he knows our stories, he knows our weaknesses, he knows exactly what we need. And Jesus tells us that he knows us just as well as he knows God the Father. And so we know that Jesus is identified with God, that him and the Father are one, that he is God. And that is such a tight, close-knit relationship because they are one. But in the same way, in verse 15, Jesus tells us that's how he knows us. And this relationship is closer than any relationship that we could ever perceive or imagine. It's closer than even between a husband and wife. And so Heidi, my wife, she knows me better than anybody else. She can tell you exactly who I am, how I am, how I feel about certain things. Even when I don't want to admit it, she knows exactly who I am. But Jesus knows me even better than that, infinitely better than that. And so we cannot hide anything from Jesus, but he knows us, and this is an experiential relationship. This is a relationship full of intimacy, intentionality. Jesus knows us, and this is how we know his voice. This is why we follow him, because he knows us. And so as the ultimate shepherd, because he knows us, we want to ask, what does Jesus then want to do with us as sheep. And so that leads us to point number three. And so Jesus gives us his purpose, that he is building a flock, that he is building a flock. And Jesus says in verse 16, that I have other sheep that are not of this flock. 
And so again, we want to remember that he is speaking to a Jewish audience. He's talking to the Old Testament covenant people of God, these people that reveled in their special status because of the law, because of their heritage as children of Abraham. They, that gave them this big superiority complex that they are better off than everybody else. And so Jesus is talking to those people, but he's telling them, hey, it's salvation isn't just for you, but I'm bringing in the Gentiles, all those people that you despise, I am bringing them in and I'm creating one flock. That salvation is moving beyond racial distinction. It's moving beyond our cultural backgrounds or our societal preferences. And he's saying that salvation is not limited to just one group of people. That he's creating one flock. And so remember back to, to verses 3 through 5 in chapter 10 This is Jesus speaking again. He says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he is brought out, all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they know, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And so for for just a minute, I want us to, to catch. Do we see what is going on here? That Jesus is taking sheep out of the pen. The pen is where you put sheep to keep them safe, but Jesus is taking them out of the pen. And the pen here is Judaism, right? That's where this Jewish audience thought that they were safe, that they were safe because of the law, that they were safe because they were Abraham's children. But Jesus is bringing these sheep out. He's not putting them into that pen. He's calling them out. He's calling them by name because remember that that there were multiple flocks that they would put into a pen and then the shepherd would call the sheep by name out of the flock. That's how they would know to follow the shepherd and leave. That's how they would separate the flocks when they were leaving the pen. And so believers, they follow because they know his voice They go out through the door like Caleb talked about last week. They go out through the door of salvation because Jesus is the door. And then Jesus is adding other sheep to his flock. He's calling sheep out of Judaism. And he's bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And he knows the Gentiles by name as well. Not just the Jewish sheep. He knows the Gentiles by name. He calls them out, adds them in. And then we get to be one flock with one shepherd. And so Paul talks about this in Galatians, talking about how we are one family now because of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith, not of heritage, not of family, not of birth, but it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So this was God's plan from all, from all along, that we, as Gentiles, I don't think many of us here are Jewish, but from the very beginning, God had a plan to bring salvation to us. That we are not excluded, but we are included into his family, that we just didn't accidentally find ourselves in someone else's story. So, look at what F.F. F. Bruce says about this new flock, about this enlarged flock. 
He says, what was to hold this enlarged flock together and supply the necessary protection from external enemies? Not enclosing walls, but the person and the power of the shepherd. The unity and safety of the people of Christ depend on their proximity to him. When they have forgotten this and tried to secure unity or safety by building walls around themselves, the, ro- the results have not been encouraging. So Jesus is taking us out of the pen. We no longer need that pen for protection because we have him. And so remember back to last week as Caleb walked us through Psalm 23. Like this, was, this was great. It, Psalm 23 is can, made up of 57 Hebrew words. And so on each side... Of the middle word, there are 28 words on either side. And that middle word is where we get translated, you are with me. That is the climax of Psalm 23, that you are with me, that God as our shepherd, Jesus as our shepherd is with us. That God calls us out through the door to salvation. We have no need for a pen anymore. That we can't save ourselves by going to a pen. We can't save ourselves by trying religion. We can't do better. We can't be saved because of who our family is. But we are only saved because of the power and the presence of the shepherd who is over us. Right? That his power is the one that saves us and sustains us. And so we have to ask the question, how does he do this? And it leads us to point four that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And so if you read in this passage, Jesus repeats this five times. He wants us to get it, right? And so we don't want to miss it because this is the heart of the gospel, that when Jesus says that I lay down my life for the sheep, that he is foreshadowing his own death, his substitutionary atoning death for us, that he is going to die for the sheep, that he would take our place, take our penalty for sin, that when he says that I'm laying it down, that means that he is laying it down in place of. He's laying it down in place of our own punishment. And so we want to know that Jesus's death isn't just an example for us of how we should live or how we should think about others. It's not just showing how much he loves us that like, hey, I love you. And so I'm going to die for you. It's not a martyr's death. It's not that he died for a cause, but that he died for you and he died for me, that this was an absolutely necessary death. And so we have to remember that we are in real danger. We are in real spiritual danger, that we are only saved through his death. We are saved from sin and judgment because of his death. But it's more than that, that he's also foreshadowing his own resurrection. In verse 18, he says, I have the authority to lay my life down, but I also have the authority to take my life back up again. And so as the son of God, that he has the authority to resurrect himself. And this part is crucial because we are not left without a shepherd when he dies. Because if you think about it, if you have a shepherd and the shepherd is killed by a wolf or a bear or whatever predator... What happens to the flock? They're still in danger, right? That's not the case with Jesus. We are not in danger because Jesus defeats death because he takes up his life again. He resurrects 
himself. And that is why we are protected by the shepherd and don't have any need for the pen. We don't have to go back in the pen because death can no longer beat him. And that is the basis of our salvation that no other shepherd will do. That every other shepherd, every other religious leader, none of them are laying down their life and taking it back up again for us. Every other shepherd is inadequate. And so we want to view the death and resurrection, that that is a single act, and that is what saves us. And we want to know that this is God's intentional plan all along, that his, that his death wasn't an accident. It wasn't like he died, and then God had to come up with a plan B to try to figure out how to save us. But this was his plan from eternity past. And so look at what D.A. Carson says. He says, Jesus' point is that the sacrificial death of the shepherd, when it occurs, must not be taken as an accident of fate or merely as a tragedy perpetrated by misguided men, but as the Father's plan. Part of the Son's obedience to that plan is his consummate awareness that he lays down his life of his own accord. And so this laying down of his life This is the Father's divine and sovereign will. We see the Father and Son, they act in perfect unity to accomplish this plan. And we see Jesus act in perfect submission to this plan. That as a son, he has the authority to lay down his life. And he does it voluntarily. And this is the crucial part here, that we did not take his life from him. We didn't kill him. But Jesus laid down his own life because it was necessary. And we see this play out in in the death and resurrection narrative that we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus leading up to the cross, his, his yielding up his life. If you think back to Luke 22, as, as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Jesus says? He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Because Jesus knew exactly what this plan was going to entail, that he was going to lay down his life for our atonement, that he knew that he was going to endure the full wrath from the Father for the punishment of sin. He knew that, and yet he went ahead with it anyway, voluntarily gave up his life. Later on in John 18, when we get there, we're going to see that Peter, when they come to arrest Jesus, do you remember what Peter does? He draws a sword and he cuts off the slave's ear. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter at that point? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Should I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup being the the plan of laying down his life. And so here's the deal. Peter thought that he was saving Jesus. Peter thought that he was protecting God's will by drawing the sword and trying to fight off those who would come to arrest him. But if Peter had saved Jesus, that would have destroyed our redemption. Do you get that? That we cannot be saved without Jesus' sacrificial death. And so God's plan all along was not to have Jesus come as a conquering king to wield his power on earth. He didn't wield a sword in order to save us from sin, but our freedom from sin would only be achieved by his death on the cross, him laying down his life. And so sometimes we're like Peter, 
We want to take God's will into our own hands, and we think that we have to fight to save and to protect God's will. And so we want to remember that one day, yes, Jesus will come back, and he will rule with all authority, all power, all dominion. We saw that a couple weeks ago from Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man, Jesus comes, the Ancient of Days, God the Father will give him all rule and authority. But God has already accomplished that. And so because he lays down his life, we want to remember that God's kingdom is not dependent upon who wins a war. It's not dependent upon who wins an election or what laws are passed or what the courts uphold or not. That those things aren't dependent on what we do. That God's will is not dependent. That God's will will not be subverted because of those things. We want to remember that although some of those things are important, that God's will is only accomplished through his death on the cross. That we don't have to save Jesus, that we don't have, we don't have to, to fight to, for his will because he has already accomplished that by laying down his life. That Peter thought he was saving Jesus from evil men, but Peter needed Jesus to die so that Peter could live. And in the same way, we need Jesus to die so that we might live. That Jesus laid down his life for us and that there was no other way for that, for us to be saved. And so we, we have to know that Jesus' death was absolutely necessary, that it was the Father's divine and sovereign plan that Jesus lay down his life for the sheep. And so we see that at the end of John, John chapter 19, verse 30. John tells us, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he, he gave up his spirit. And so we didn't kill him. Jesus lays down his life for us. He died for us. And that brings us to the last point our application, and that deals with our response. And so look at, again at verses 19 through 20. John writes, A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And so we see this after every single miracle that Jesus performs. Every time that he has this public teaching, this public discourse, that people are confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. They have to reckon with what he says about himself. And so they, they're forced with the question, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he the son of God or is he a demon? Is he insane? Is he just a crazy person? And so some people, they obviously say that he has a demon. This isn't the first time that we've seen this accusation leveled against Jesus. If you think back to chapter 7, that's one of the things they said. But in saying that he has a demon, what they're saying is that Jesus doesn't fit our expectations of the Messiah. That when the Messiah is supposed to come, we don't think that that's how he's supposed to act. So therefore, this guy has to have a demon. But we see that others are like, hey, no way. This guy has to be the Messiah. Because who else can do the work of God but only 
God. They point back to the miracle of the blind man. And they remember that, hey, the prophets told us that when the Messiah comes, he's going to open the eyes of the blind. So if that's happening, this guy has to be the Messiah. And so in the same way, we have that exact same choice that's presented to us every single day. And so we may not think that Jesus is a demon, right? That's not something that we uh, typically lend ourselves to when we see someone crazy. We don't think, oh, that person's got a demon. We just think that they're not right. We think that they're maybe just a liar or they don't understand. But that's, that's how we view Jesus sometimes, that, eh, I don't really believe it. So do we believe that Jesus is a liar, that he's not truly who he says he is, or do we believe that he is the divine son of God, that he is the Messiah who has come into the world to be our only hope of salvation? This points us back to this quote by C.S. Lewis that we keep coming back to. But I think he summarizes it so well. Because C.S. Lewis, he says, I'm trying to here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. It's like saying that Jesus, yeah, he's a shepherd. Yes, he loves people. He cares for people, right? But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. We all must make our choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. That you can shut him up for a fool... You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, that he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we have to remember that Jesus' purpose in all that he is teaching us every single last bit that he tells us about himself, that, that he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, that we are his sheep, that he is building us into his flock, that he lays down his life for us, that he is with us, that he does all of this because he loves us. Every single thing that he's teaching us and telling us is leading to one purpose, and we see that at the end of John. He makes it explicit for us. And so look at what John says in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written, these things that John has recounted to us about what Jesus has said, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so Jesus is our good shepherd. He laid down his life so that we might believe in him and have life, an abundant life in him. So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your presence that is with us. 
We thank you that you call us by name and that you have called us into your flock. And we thank you most of all that you have laid down your life for us, that you have saved us when we were completely helpless, when we could not save ourselves. So God, today we ask that you would call more sheep to yourself, Lord, that they would hear your voice, that they would follow you through the door, that they would follow you out of the pen, that they would find salvation, that they would find life in you. And so, Lord, you and you alone are our good shepherd. And so we give you all the praise for the grace that you lavish upon us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.